Welcome to Hillside. So glad you guys are here this morning. Uh, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 100. We're going to Psalm 100 this morning. And if you're just joining us, we're actually wrapping up a series uh, called Songs of Summer, and which is good because it feels like summer was over, I don't know, a month ago. But um, we are going to wrap up this series. We've been in this series called The Songs of Summer, and then I'm super pumped. Actually, next week we're starting a new series um, that we have entitled The Disciples' Prayer, and it comes from the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And um, I'll explain to you why we call it the Disciples' Prayer next week, but I'm really excited for that. If you wanted to get ahead and, and read through that, it's in Matthew chapter 6. Would love for you to just be joining us for that series. And I know that I've said this before during this series, but let me say it again. The Psalms are so fruitful because they show us the reality of, of our humanity. And then at the same time, they show us the reality of who God is. The Psalms are... So theologically rich. In fact, uh, Dan actually started this series off by saying that exact same thing. These are so theologically rich. They help us to see God clearly. They help us to see his beauty and his majesty and his glory. And at the same time, they help us to see who we are. They help us to see how puny we are in the scope of eternity and in relationship to the majesty of God. And that's a good thing. And at the same time, the Psalms continually point us to the reality of who God is, and He is huge, and He's creator, and He's glorious, and He's mad, majestic, but at the exact same time, the Psalms tell us that He loves me, and you, and He wants joy for us, and He cares for each of us individually, and as the psalmist says, He even formed us in our mother's wombs, He knew us from the beginning of time. And so, each and every week during this series, it's been a wonderful reminder of the fact that God is God and I am not. As simple as that sounds, that's not bad to be reminded of. And even still, He's with me. And with that, today I would like to end our series with a psalm that's actually called A Psalm for Giving Thanks. That's the title of it. We're going to look again at who God is, but I just really want us to be encouraged as a church on how we should respond. I hope that we will find ourselves worshiping Him as we see Him more clearly. One of the biggest things that I think that we should all be aware of is that we have an adversary in our life. We have an adversary in our life. His name is Satan. Your adversary is not the kid at school who picks on you. It's not your neighbor who parks on your grass. That's not, that's not your adversary. Satan is our adversary. In John chapter 10, Jesus said that the thief, who is Satan, comes to kill and steal and destroy. And from day one, Satan has been on this campaign to smear the truth of God's goodness so that people will not follow him. And you might say, well, give me some proof of that. Well, in the garden, when Satan tempted Eve, his main ploy was very crafty, but his plan was to get Eve to doubt that God intended good for her. He wanted her to doubt that by the fact that God was forbidding Eve to have something that was good, fruit. And so Satan said this to Eve in Genesis 3, verse 5. He said, For God knows that when you eat of it, this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what is it at that point that Satan was trying to do there with Eve? 
Well, he wanted Eve to doubt God's goodness to her, right? Satan was saying to Eve, God is trying to keep you from a good thing. And the extension of that thought is this, God is not really good. And so the devil has used this falsehood in varying forms to keep people from following the Lord forever. Satan promotes the lie that if you follow God, you will miss out on life. And some of us want to believe that if we follow God, we can't have dessert anymore. It's only kale, which is, anyway. The unfortunate thing is that many Christians, so we know this to be a true of Satan. We know that he has blinded the minds of unbelievers, but many Christians have actually played into the devil's schemes, I think, by being a Christian and being a total bummer. I'm not even for a second saying that the Christian life is easy. Don't hear me saying that. It is joyful all the time, but there could be hard days for sure. But Satan wants you and I as believers to doubt that God is good. And on top of that, frequently followers of Christ give God bad press because we don't act as if the God we follow is good. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says that God has made us into something. Look at this. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So if you are a follower of Christ, this is true of you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So God has made us a people for his own possession by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, this is who you are. Why did God do that? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So that that sounds like something that the Christian should rejoice over. Our job as believers then is to proclaim the excellencies of God who has called us out of darkness and into light. That's not lame. The psalm that we're going to study today, Psalm 100, is a psalm, I believe, for the church. How do we give God good press? How do we help people to see that God is good? How do we not play into Satan's game? Psalm 100 is a psalm for the church. It's a psalm that lays out what a believer should look like to the unbelieving world. A church that's marked by joy, this psalm lays out for us the marks of a God-honoring church. And Psalm 100 gives us a message today that says this, that God is glorified in a joyful people who are eager to know Him and to make him known. The unbelieving world needs a joyful church. And this passage paints a picture of God's call for the church in worship. This passage is the kind of community that actually Jesus is building in his church. Psalm 100 helps us to see the people that Jesus means to unleash into the world. It's a passage that shows us, shows the church, sorry, how to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. So how do we display God's goodness to the world? Psalm 100 doesn't say everything about how the church should operate, but I think it gives us really clear imperatives this morning for the church that we can see on how to worship God. So let's start with verses 1 and 2. They say this, Psalm 100 verses 1 and 2 say, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. What is the first call to the church in verses 1 and 2? 
The call is to praise God. Praise God. The psalmist tells us a couple of ways to praise God in verses 1 and 2. First, he says this, praise God loudly. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. What does that mean? Well, it comes from the Hebrew word, which means to shout. The original word means glad shout. The picture here is of a loyal subjects giving a loud shout when their king appears among them. So for the church, it's a worshipful shout acknowledging that God is king. The church is loud when we recognize God's reign, and then they shout to joy to the Lord because he is king. A joyful noise to the Lord is a spontaneous shout of joy that comes from everyone that acknowledges what the king has done. I think it's really important to stop here and say that I know that this isn't like some of us. We aren't shouters. Our personalities are such that making a loud, spontaneous shout would be nearly impossible. We, we don't want to draw attention to ourselves. We don't want to worship loudly. We maybe would even say we're Midwesterners. It's not really our personality. We're kind of a stoic people. We're concerned about what we look like when, or what people might think of us. And we, and we even in our culture have kind of this cerebral culture because we're in an academic environment, right? And this kind of exuberance, this idea of a joyful noise doesn't come naturally to most of us. Well, I want to say this. The psalmist isn't saying that we're supposed to be fake. He isn't calling you and I to pretend. This is actually not a call exactly to the individual. It's a call to the whole body. And so the psalmist isn't saying that you should be weird by yourself. (laughs) What is the psalmist saying then? Well, he's saying that the church as a whole should be marked by worshipful people who are joyful and they are joyfully caught off guard when they think of what God has done for them. This is real praise that happens corporately when we see our king, when we realize what we are worshiping. Joyful noise then just comes as a response, and it's something that the church does when we are caught off guard by who God is. The kind of energy that Psalm 100 calls us to actually this week brought for me, it brought to mind a USD football game that I went to last year. Um, I had the opportunity to be at the USD-SDSU football game. I don't know if any of you remember that game, but there was one second left on the clock. Am I jogging any memories? Okay, yeah. And if you're an SDSU fan, I'm sorry, I guess. But um, anyway, I, I thought that it was interesting that I'm a relatively new fan to USD football because prior to moving here in February of 2021, I didn't even know about USD. But now I'm a fan, okay? So I'm a relatively new fan to USD football, and I'm not actually that expressive of a person. I'm a Midwest boy myself, but I found myself, after that miracle touchdown pass and catch, I hugged somebody close by me. That's weird, isn't it, Dan? Yeah, I'm not a hugger. I don't even know who they were. I was screaming at the top of my lungs, and I received the most aggressive high five that I've ever received in my life to the point where my hand still hurts and I have to have shoulder surgery, but that's a lie. Um, But it was so real, my excitement. 
It was spontaneous, and it was a result of what I had just witnessed. And here in Psalm 100, the idea of joyful noise is that you and I, regardless of our personalities, are so caught off guard by who God is and what we see in His Son, Jesus Christ, that we just exalt Him as a community. I also would like to stop here for a second and say that I think it's important to say this, too. Some places in the Psalms call us to be still and know that the Lord is God. They tell us to come before God in reverent awe. That's good and that's worship as well. But right here in this psalm, God has his hand on the volume knob and he's telling us to turn it up to 10. Praise God. The the church proves God's goodness when we are audibly joyful because of the goodness of God. When we are so caught off guard by the miracle of Christ that we praise God. Verse 1 calls us to praise God loudly, and then verse 2 says that the scope of our worship should be all-encompassing and total. What do I mean by that? Well, notice that verse 1 says that we worship with a joyful noise and singing, but then in verse 2 it says that the church is also marked by worship in the way that we serve. Worship lays claim to everything we do. Paul actually said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then he also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so for the Christian, worship isn't just about singing or singing loudly. It is that, but it's more. The word serve in verse 2 is actually a comprehensive Hebrew term, meaning this. It was used in the Old Testament to describe formal acts of worship in the temple, like singing. But it was also used to describe ordinary work in Genesis chapter 2. And so the psalmist is saying worship is audible, yes, but worship is also just a part of your everyday life. It's comprehensive. We worship the Lord with gladness when we gather, but we also worship the Lord the other six days of the week. And so Colossians 3, chapter 23, or chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 say this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So worship is audible, but it's also total. It's service as well. It's our whole lives. Let me ask all of us a question here after verses 1 and 2. Does it change anything if you and I wake up tomorrow thinking this? I don't merely work for this company. I'm not just raising kids. I'm not just working towards a degree. I'm not just sitting in this classroom. I'm serving the Lord Christ. And what I do, the way I do that, affects how people know the goodness of God in my own life. Psalm Psalm verse 100, sorry, chapter 100, verses 1 and 2, starts with a mark of a church, and that is that the church should be a place that rejoices. People should know us as a rejoicing people both with our voices and with our lives. The call of God's church is to rejoice, but the psalmist then moves in verse 3 by saying this. Here's another mark of the church, and it's that we know God. 
It's really what prompts us to praise God. Verses 1 and 2, verse 3 says this, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So the psalmist begins the psalm of thanksgiving with a call to praise God. He stops for a second now, and it's as if he's saying this, if you need a few reasons to praise God, here they are. There's three of them in verse 3. He says, number one, he is God. (laughs) It's not overly profound, is it? Why should I praise God? Because he is God. This verse literally means this. God is God. The psalmist says the first reason that we praise God is that he is God. Look at at how much this psalm focuses on God. Verse 1, to the Lord, serve the Lord, come before the Lord, come before him, know the Lord. He made, we are his, his people, his pasture, his gates, his courts, to him, his name, Lord is good, his faithful love, his faithfulness, it is all focused on God. Psalm 100 is all about God, and the point is this. God is the God of the universe, and that is a good thing. God is God, and I am not. The first truth of verse 3 is we praise God because He is God. And you might be saying, well, that is obvious. Help inspire me to know that God is God. Well, the psalmist moves on then, and he says this, He is God, and He made us. Why do I rejoice? I rejoice because God is God, and I rejoice because He made us. Plain and simple, He is the Creator. The idea that we could make ourselves is absurd. And so the psalmist is saying, God is God, and He made us. We have to know that. It informs our worship. When we believe that we are self-made people, then we, are somehow, we, we somehow get here by ourselves. And when that is true in our lives, then we have no one but ourselves to thank. We become self-worshippers. And you might say, yeah, but I know we're here to praise God. But guys, I want us to know that Christians do this a lot. We say, I'm a hard worker. We say, why don't people notice me more? Look at all that I have done. It's, It's all about us. And this verse is saying, know that the Lord, He is God. He's the one that made you. I don't understand why I don't do this more. I don't understand why Christians don't do this more. But we should be saying, praise God a lot. God made us. I think that as simple as that is, it's one of the most important things that any of us can know. Why? Because, and this is huge, you and I don't gather on a Sunday morning to worship a souped-up version of ourselves. And that's really good news. God is a God of sovereignty, and He's a God of providence. And He sets the dates for kingdoms to rise and fall. And I want you to think about this reality in relation to your own life. He made you. He knows what you need, and I've been asking myself this question all week long because, and I've told you guys this a number of different times, I struggle with my own anxiety a lot of different times, but I've been asking myself this question all week long. Does the thing that I fear the most, the thing that keeps me up at night, have on its resume, maker of heavens and earth? 
This is our Creator, God. Trust Him. Cast your cares upon Him. Be still and know that He is God. We live in a world with enough mirrors. What we all need is a window to see past ourselves. We need to see God in His high and holy place. He is God, and it is He who made us. So why do we praise God? Why do we come into His courts with praise? Why do we have a joyful noise on our hearts? Because God is God and He made us. And then the third thing we see in verse 3 is that we are His. This is the third reason in verse 3 that we praise God. We worship God because He has chosen us. And in light of that fact, that, or in light of the fact that He is God and that He is a Creator, that is huge. This last point of verse 3 should be so overwhelming to all of us. If you read the Old Testament, you will see that Israel was chosen by God and he called them to follow him. How did he do that? How did he choose Israel? Well, we see that God redeemed them from their bondage in Egypt, right? He called them out of bondage and made them his people. And we in the church... We're once not God's people, but he chose us and he called us to follow us, follow him, redeeming us from our bondage to sin. If you know God through, through his son, Jesus Christ, then he is your redeemer and you are his people. Before we move on, note that the psalmist uses the imagery of sheep when he says that we are his. This part of Psalm 100 reminds us of Psalm 23. It's a really famous psalm that says that the Lord is my shepherd. How? He guides me. He leads me. He cares for me. Psalm 100 also points to John 10, where Jesus says that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And so his sheep know his voice and they follow him and he leads them to abundant pasture. Verse 3 points us to the reality that God is full of loving kindness and faithfulness. And the psalmist is saying, because of that, we should be a people of joy. The church should be marked by people who know God and worship Him. Verse 3 says, God is God, God is our Creator, and God is our Redeemer and Shepherd, and that's why we should praise Him. And the psalmist is so overjoyed by that reality of verse 3 that he goes on now to verse 4 and says this, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him, bless His name. So verse 4 should also be another mark of the church. Our church should be marked by people who are thankful. We should praise and thank God in our private devotions for sure, but this verse focuses on worshiping God corporately. Here's how we know that this is about corporate worship, a corporate worship service. The words, His gates and His courts, both refer to the tabernacle or the temple where God's people came together to worship Him. And so the psalmist is saying this, publicly worship God, and when you come to the house of prayer, be thankful that you have such a privilege, and when you enter into his courts, praise him for the permission that he has given you in Jesus Christ. I love the way that Eugene Peterson says this in his paraphrase of Psalm 100 in the message. He writes this, enter with the password, thank you. Make yourselves at home talking praise, thank Him, worship Him. How do we as a people enter His gates and come into His courts? The password is thank you. Are we a people that are marked by the thankfulness in God's goodness? Does the world know how grateful we are for God's faithfulness? 
The psalmist ends then with verse 5, and he says this, For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. So there's a call in verses 1 and 2 to praise God, and then in verse 3 we're given reasons for praising God. And then we're called again in verse 4 to give thanks to God and praise God, and then in verse 5 we're given a reason for that. Why do we worship God? Why should the believer and the church be marked by joyful worship? Because God is good. This sums up God's character. God is good, and He's gracious, and He is kind, and He is generous, and He is love. How do we know? Well, verse 1 says that His love endures forever. God's not cold and stern. He is passionate and slow to anger and rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. His steadfast love endures forever. Everlasting love is a glorious theme for worship. Everlasting love is a glorious theme for the goodness of God. God is good because of his everlasting love, and the verse also says that he's good because his faithfulness is to all generations. This is just another way of saying that his faithfulness is everlasting. God is not fickle. God is not moody. The people that would have read this psalm when it was written, they would have had other gods, right? The heathens had other gods who were not good. This is what we know about them historically. They were selfish and they were impulsive. You could never know when they might turn against you or do you harm. This is not true of our God. God is true to his eternal attributes. He is faithful faithful to his covenant promises. He is true to all all of his revealed purposes. The Bible contains the record of his faithfulness to his people in the past. We can read about it. It also shows how he will be true to his promises to glorify his people in the future. And so we can worship God for his faithfulness to us in the present No matter what we are going through, his faithfulness is to all generations, the psalmist says. That's why we praise him. God is good. This brings us to the end of this psalm of thanksgiving. And as we always do, the question is this. What does this mean for me? The psalm says God is good. This this passage teaches us of one of the most important character traits of God, his goodness. What does this mean for us? What do we do with this? Maybe you guys have seen this before. I've seen preachers work a crowd into a frenzy. I've seen people get so stirred up that they begin to shout on command. And is this what our church should be marked by? Is this what God is calling us to? I I don't think so. I think the point of this passage is this, that true praise looks at God, recognizes His greatness, remembers the reality of His blessings, and then as a result, we burst forth from a soul that adores the Lord. A church is marked by joy. This psalm is an encouragement for the church in how we worship when we see God. I started this message by talking about how one of Satan's main tactics is for you and me to forget or to question the goodness of God because he wants the unbelieving world to struggle with God's goodness for sure. 
But I think he wants even more for you and me to struggle with God's goodness. And he really wants the church to not be a testimony to God's goodness. As we get ready to close out this series and even to wrap up this sermon, I want us to think about this question this morning. What is it that the world sees when they see us? What comes to mind? Is it the words ignorant and judgmental and lame and boring and rules and religion and irrelevant? Or is the church best described by Psalm 100? Are we described by the words joyful and gladness and songs and thanksgiving and nations worshiping and children and their children and their children for generations knowing God's faithfulness? I don't know about you, but that is what I want for us. I think that that would draw people to God. How? How do we get there as a church? How are we so caught off guard by the goodness of God that we are marked by joy and thankfulness that we see in Psalm 100? Well, here's just one thing that I would really love for all of us to remember today. We have to be a people that centers our worship on God and His goodness. That's how we show people who God is. But how do we do that? We see God's goodness in Jesus Christ. Psalm 100 actually has six imperatives spoken to us. There are six things that we're told to do in Psalm 100. Here they are. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that he is God. Enter into his gates and give thanks. Six imperatives, six things that the church should be marked by. And we have to understand this this morning in worship, whether the word of God is read and instructs us about things that we're supposed to do or whether a preacher, who in this case is me, gives you exhortation in what you're supposed to do. Even those imperatives in how we're supposed to respond to God's word in our lives and our services, even those things are set in the context of what God has already done for us. We gather as believers for worship because of what God has done for us. When God calls us to do this or do that or do this in Psalm 100, all of these imperatives are set in the context of what God has already done in the gospel. And so they are not words to us where God says, do these things and I will give you life. Rather, I have given you life by my work. Now, therefore, do this. The order is not to do this and live. It is, I have given you life, now worship. God's commands are not burdens for the church. They are that are being laid on our backs to, for us to resent. God is kindly speaking to us what the way of life is in light of, light of that life that he has already accomplished for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so this is key for you and me to remember this morning. Remember that every exhortation that is brought to us, in, to us is not a word condemning us or burdening us, but every exhortation to worship God is always a word of life to us because of the gospel of our Lord and Savior. Our worship always centers on the celebration of God's person. He is good. Look at Jesus. The worship team can come on up.
the big reveal that we wait to uncover every single Sunday, maybe you've noticed, is some version of this. Jesus is the one you need. And you say, Robbie, you said that last Sunday. I know. And I'm probably going to say it again next Sunday. Why? Because we were, we're going to say it again and again and again until the truth breaks through darkness and sin and addiction and boredom and nominalism and shame and guilt. We will continue to speak this good news, the gospel about what God has done in Christ, that through Christ, you and I can be in relationship with the God of the universe. That through Christ's finished work on the cross, you and I can be forgiven of our sins. That through Christ, you and I can be free from sin. The cross of Christ points us to God's goodness. And when we look to Jesus, we are overwhelmed and we make a joyful noise to the Lord. And that's our response. A joyful people for the world to see is our response when we keep our eyes set on Jesus Christ. A joyful people for the world to see is so important. The church should be marked by a people who are focused on the good news of the gospel. I once was lost, but now I'm found. My sins were great, but God's mercy is greater. This morning, we have an opportunity before us to once again focus on the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. It's our custom on the first Sunday of every month to partake in communion as a body, and so maybe you guys saw the little communion cups when you came in. Um, if you didn't, you have a red stain on the back of your pants. But. but it's our custom on the first Sunday of every month to take communion. What causes God's people to shout for joy to the Lord all the earth? When we look at what God has done on the cross through Jesus Christ. And communion for us is a time to remember and celebrate together the work of God's goodness on the cross on our behalf. Communion is for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we would ask you at Hillside, you don't have to be a member to take communion with us, but we would ask that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so you might be asking this morning, how can I know Jesus? You need to believe in his name, believe that Jesus Christ took the penalty for your sin on the cross, and now that he is raised again and seated at the right hand of the Father. But today we're going to take communion together, and first we'll take the bread, and then we'll sing a song, and then we will take the cup. And so if you guys wanted to pull this little wafer off the top of your cup, you could do that now. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 24 says this, For I received from the Lord what I, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we take communion, this is not a mere formality. We don't just do this because it's something that we've always done. The Lord's Supper is not just a memorial of the Last Supper. This piece of bread is, a, is, is constant and it's a repeated reminder and experience, as we look at it, of the efficacy of the death of Christ for us, that he bought your freedom. 
Jesus broke his body for our sake to bring us to the Father, to bind us together as a body. Look at this wafer before you take it and know that the Lord is good. Remember that this morning, that Christ's death bought us new life, and that should cause great joy for us. Let me pray for us, and then we'll partake together. Father, thank you for your, your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your broken body on the cross. And Father, thank you that that points us to the reality that you are good, that you care for us, that you made a way for us to be in relationship with, with you. Father, I pray that as we take communion this morning, that we would be so caught off guard by your goodness that it would cause us to sing and be thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. You can partake together.